back in Exodus chapter 25. Um, again, God's the one that first established this cheerful giving principle, right? And picking it up in verse 3, and this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, it's just kind of funny. I'm just thinking this right now, but as we read something like this and we see these materials, these things that are given, we're kind of like, well, that's kind of strange, goat's hair and all that. But I guess if... uh, another 500 years were to go by or something and there was something written today about cell phones and iPods and things like that, people would be like, what? What are the, well, these people had those things back then? That's so primitive, you know, or whatever. But anyway, but okay, but we see there the reason for the offering. All of this stuff needed to be collected for a specific purpose, just like there was a specific purpose in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. They had a purpose for that money, okay? And the purpose here in Exodus chapter 25 was to build a sanctuary where God may dwell with the people. So God didn't just back in that day make a sanctuary supernaturally appear, right? Or nor nor do church buildings just pop up out of the ground today. Okay? He allows the cheerful givers to get involved in his doings. He allows for his people to take part in the building of this sanctuary through their sacrificial giving. Okay? But as it pertains to God dwelling with man today, we know from the New Testament scriptures today that God dwells within us because of Jesus Christ, right? Because of His Spirit. We don't build sanctuaries today, buildings that is, so that God can dwell in that building. For He dwells within us today as the born-again believer. Buildings and houses like this are, are just places where the body of Christ can come together and gather and minister to one another and also reach out to the community around them. So if you have a church building out there, or whether you're meeting in a house, you know, you can meet pretty much anywhere and have the presence of God amongst us because the presence of God is within us as born-again believers. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with Him, okay? So God still wants to dwell among us today as His people, but there is only one way in which He does that now, and that is by His Spirit being within us. And His Spirit is within those that love Him, those that show their love for Him by keeping His Word. So the person that loves God wants to keep the Word of God. And and they've come to faith in Jesus Christ and God dwells in them by His Spirit. 
So he doesn't dwell within buildings today. He dwells within me, within you. And if you love him today and and keep his word, he dwells within you. So hence the reason that we can gather wherever we want. We can gather in parks. We can gather in houses. We can gather in open spaces, storefronts, and traditional church buildings, whatever it may be. People can come and gather wherever. But you see, all the more, though, as we see the final days approaching, we all need to be gathering together more and more. Being a healthy body of Christ, a body that is making an impact, uh, not a self-centered body that is storing up for ourselves and just looking out for number one and looking out for ourselves. We're looking out for each other. And we all need to be inviting others to come to Jesus and to come and be taught in the Word of God. As I have said before, if you're not going to spread the gospel to the people in your sphere of influence, then bring them to someone that will, and then support the person that does that, right? Because we're all a part of the body of Christ, and we all need to take part in it. God wants His people taken part in the building of His kingdom. So, but again, we live in a time today of the New Testament Christianity, not in the time of the Old Testament. God today, by His Spirit, dwells within the born-again believer wherever he or she goes. So what we're reading in Exodus is the Old Testament time. No need today for special buildings to house God's presence. But back in the time of which we now read here in Exodus, this is how God did it. And don't think of this uh, sanctuary as a place that housed the completeness of who God is, but rather simply a place where they could come and meet with God in that day. But there was far more to what God was showing them here than, than first meets the eye. All of this that we read about in the, in the temple was nothing more of than a shadow or a picture of what is to come. And I'll expound on that as we go on here. But we'll see that this all has a purpose to point the way to Jesus Christ as they build this sanctuary, this tabernacle, okay? And the Lord God continues here in verse 9, and He says, According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. God's saying, do it exactly like this, right? Follow every detail that I'm about to give you, okay? In verse 10, God begins to give very specific details. He says to Moses, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. Now I forgot to do something. Bear with me just one moment.
wanted to give you this. Just to give you a, a little visual picture, um, there's a, a lot of depictions out there of what this, um, you know, this ark would look like. We really don't know. Personally, I think it might be a little bit more elaborate than what we see in that artist's depiction there that I've shown you here. But, um, and I don't remember where I just left off, but I'm going to start again in verse 11. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with the gold. Do you see how the poles go through the rings? You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. Okay, so this ark that they were told by God to build here was a wooden chest. That's what an ark is, okay? Oftentimes we think of Noah's ark and we think an ark is a boat, but the word ark is a wooden chest, okay? And of course, Noah made the boat out of wood. And But anyway, it will later be referred to as the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Maybe that's a term you've heard. This will later be referred to as the Ark of the Covenant. It was covered inside and out with pure gold. And on each side of this wooden chest, it had rings of gold through which the poles were inserted to help them carry it. But these poles were also to, um, to keep them from actually touching the Ark. Because you see, it was forbidden to touch the Ark with your hands. You can read in 2 Samuel chapter 6 about a, a man named Uzzah that touched the ark to keep it from falling off of a cart and onto the ground. But he did not touch the poles as God instructed him to. He actually touched the ark and he was struck dead as a result of touching the ark. So the thing is, is there was a holiness a purity to this ark. It was, in fact, a representation or a pattern of the throne of God. Okay? So this is something that they were to take very serious. As I've mentioned in weeks past, they're to take what God is telling them very seriously here. The, the law that God gave them, they were to take it seriously and do it and to live it out, right? But, and no one can come near the throne of God and nor can anyone today come to the throne room of God if not for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the only way that we have today to approach God. But as we look at all of this stuff mentioned here in this chapter, where did they get all of these things that God commanded them to give to make the sanctuary and the ark? Well, they most likely got all of this stuff from the Egyptians when 
they left Egypt. If you remember, before they left Egypt, they collected a bunch of stuff from the Egyptians, uh, gold and you know, all kinds of stuff from them, right? Now, they had slaved for years to earn these things. And here in this chapter, we see that God is asking them to cheerfully give, right? To sacrifice these, thing, these things for a sanctuary and a, an ark, a wooden chest, right? So you see, when we refer to our hard-earned money today and the possessions that we have today, we, we need to always be aware that God wants us to give of these things as well. Okay? God wants us to give. And that's what they did here to build this tabernacle and to make this ark that God had instructed them to make. Verse 16, And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give to you. I already read that, but I wanted to read it to you again because the testimony mentioned here was a copy of the law that Moses would be the one to write down, right? Now, of course, part of the law was the Ten Commandments, which were written on um, tablets of stone, okay? They were going to be in this ark as well. God told Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant to hold the law even before he had completely given all the law yet. We haven't even got to the place where all the law has been given yet and written down. But God's saying, hey, make this ark because the law is going to be put in there. Later, um, God would instruct Israel to put other things in the ark of the covenant as well. In addition to the two tablets of the covenant, the law, right? Hebrews 9, 4 mentions that the golden pot that had the manna. Do you remember we read about the manna that God provided for them, right? They, they kept some of that manna in a golden pot after they went through that time. And they, they kept it. That would be kept in that ark for years to come. And also um, Aaron's rod that budded, the rod that Aaron had, uh, was also kept in the ark of the covenant. Um this ark was the most sacred object of the tabernacle. And later, it would be placed in the temple that was built in Jerusalem. This initial tabernacle that they're going to make, this sanctuary that they're going to make, was a tent. And it was movable. And when they would move on, they could take it with them and set it up again. But, there, but the way when you went into this sanctuary, the way that it was set up, this is what God is instructing them in. First, we see him telling them to make this ark, okay? Then in verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold that's what's on top. Those angels that you see on top there, they're the cherubim of gold, okay? Of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Now, the, I'll explain, I'll repeat this, but the mercy seat is the lid that's on top of that box, and it has the cherubim on there at each end. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with 
the mercy seat. So that lid, those angels referred to it here as cherubim, right? That's all one piece. And it's set on top of the box, on top of the ark, okay? And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. So you see how specific God's being here, okay? You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. Okay, so he hasn't given it to him yet, the law, everything written down, right? And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So God's going to speak to them here, right? So we see here, again, I'm going to repeat this, but on top of the ark, on top of this wooden box, was a lid that was called the mercy seat. Here would rest the cloud or visible symbol of the divine presence of God through which God would manifest himself to the children of Israel. Inside the sanctuary, this thing will be, we'll see, right? So here, in a sense, God was seated, right? And from this place, he would dispense mercy to mankind. The children of Israel at that time, he would dispense mercy to them. When the blood of the atonement was sprinkled upon this mercy seat. There would be blood sprinkled upon the top of this, the mercy seat. Now let me show you what I mean by that. Now go ahead and mark this page again and find Leviticus. It's the very next book. Right after Exodus is Leviticus, okay? And we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Now, there's a whole lot that can be discussed as we look at chapter 16 here. But the thing I simply want you to note this morning is that mankind, you and me, and everyone else are sinners that fall short of the glory of God. In order for us to ever be able to approach a holy God, such as the God of all creation, there first has to be an atonement for our sin. He is holy, we are not. He is righteous, we are not. He is pure, we are not. We are defiled sinners and we cannot directly approach the God of all creation. So God here with the children of Israel was establishing a way for them to know His presence, to be in His presence, right? But again, there needs to be atonement for our sins. What we are reading about in Exodus is is a people that just like us needed their sins atoned for. So God provided for them a way of atonement. This Ark of the Covenant, which we are reading about this morning, was used by God as a way for the people to atone for their sins. Okay, I know I'm being repetitious about this, but it's important we understand this. Okay, now again, this way 
does not exist today. In other words, we don't come to God through setting up an ark like this in our house or in a church building or whatever. Today, our sins have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ, by His death on the cross. The shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest and the final answer for our sins. We, we cannot atone for our own sins. Our religions today, denominations, non-denominations, sacred buildings and such, nothing can atone for our sin today. Only Jesus has paid the price. And the only answer for mankind to be right in the sight of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. But this Ark of the Covenant, okay, this tabernacle and this sanctuary in, in which this Ark was going to be contained, it's all just a picture. It's all just a shadow, if you will, of the mercy that was to come to mankind through Jesus Christ, okay? So here in Leviticus 16, and looking down at verse 14, this is speaking of Aaron, who was the high priest. Now, we haven't got there yet, but Aaron's going to go on to be the high priest over the children of Israel. But as we fast forward and we move up into Leviticus like this, Aaron is the high priest at this time, along with his sons, right? We'll, we'll actually see that when we get to chapter 28 of Exodus. But Aaron and his sons will be the high priest. His sons will turn out to be no good. Okay, But here in verse 14, we see that it says that Aaron will take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. Okay, So now we're back to looking at this ark again, right? He's going to sprinkle some of the blood of a bull on the mercy seat on the east side, and before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Now again, picture this mercy seat as it's a lid on a wooden box, this, this Ark of the Covenant that God had them make. Inside the Ark, inside the box, was contained, contained the law. Now, the law condemned and judged these people as sinners simply because they could not keep the Holy Law. And the law's inside this Ark of the Covenant. So each year on what was called the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, inside the temple, he would enter into a place that was behind a veil. And that place was called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. So this is inside the, the tabernacle, or inside what later would be the temple, where this ark was contained. And it would be behind a veil. Okay? And he would enter in and he would make sacrifice and he would sprinkle blood on it, right? He would sprinkle the blood of animals sacrificed for the atonements of the sins of God pe God's people. So he would go in there and say, on behalf of all the people of Israel, on behalf of all the children of Israel, we're atoning for them their sins by sprinkling blood on this mercy seat, right? So this gave a picture an image, if you will, of the fact that it is only through the offering of blood 
that the condemnation of the law could be taken away. Because if you think about the law, the law is good. We've talked about that in times past, how we have laws that are good, but yet laws also prove we are sinners. It's kind of like seeing a sign that says, keep off the grass. A lot of people are tempted to walk on the grass when they see a sign that says, keep off the grass, right? That's just our sinful nature. And the law, the written warning or whatever it is, tells us this is what you shouldn't do, but we do it. It's like a speed limit, like I've brought up several times. It says 45. That's the limit. That's supposed to be the max according to the law. But how many of us sin in that sense and break that law and go over that 45, right? So the law then condemns in that sense, okay? And the shedding of the blood was necessary for our sin because again, we have a righteous, a holy, a pure, a all-powerful God right? Who sin separated us from all the way back in the Garden of Eden. So now we're out of fellowship with God. So God's trying to establish a way here through the ark that he can be in the presence of his people again, right? Back in in this day. Now, the Greek word for mercy seat, as it is used in the book of Hebrews, is the word hilasterion, okay? And this is a word that means propitiation. It expresses the idea of the removal of sin. So why am I pointing this out to you this morning? Well, again, we know today that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the propitiation for our sin. Romans chapter 3 says in verse 24, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Okay, so Jesus' blood is what removes our sin. I'll I'll read on. It says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. So God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ, so that He could pass over our sins and not see our sins anymore. Our sins were atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now what this teaches us is that Jesus is the covering for our sin as shown by these Old Testament prophetic prophetic images that we're looking at this morning. We respond to the death of Jesus Christ through our faith in Him, All of our sins are then covered. So again, what we're seeing in the book of Exodus and Leviticus this morning all ties together the Old and the New Testament teachings regarding the covering of sin as exemplified by the mercy seat of God. The mercy covers that which condemns us. The law, sin, condemns us. But the blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat is the atonement of our sin. So Jesus is our covering. Jesus is our mercy. Now let's go ahead and turn back to Exodus chapter 25. Okay? And again, I know we're covering a lot of stuff today. Okay? So hang in there. But picking it up in verse 23, it says, 
You shall also make a table of acacia wood. So we're talking about a table now. We're going from the ark, making the ark. Now we're making a table. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. I don't have a picture of a table for you here, right? You shall make for it a frame of a hand breadth all around. And you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold. So just like with the ark, right? Four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners at, that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. So they were, they were going to carry this by poles as well, right? And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Okay, so let's summarize this table here of showbread. That's another name for this table, the table of showbread, okay? Um, I'm actually not going to expound on the table itself this morning, but rather upon the bread right now that was set, that was to always be set upon this table, okay? And what... I'm about to tell you here is all contained in the book of Leviticus chapter 24. So if you want to read it later, Leviticus chapter 24. But this bread of the presence or showbread, as it's called here, was made of fine flour, baked in the 12 loaves, arranged in two piles of six loaves, and it was set on a table of pure gold. And it was then covered with frankincense and served as a memorial food offering before the Lord. The bread could only be eaten by Aaron and his sons in a, in a holy place, and it was set out every Sabbath day. Okay? Here we see that God instructed that this bread be placed um, on this golden table, right? This bread here, like the mercy seat, also gives us a great picture of Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Jesus himself in John 6.35 said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. So this is a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus is holy before God and is ever-present. To those that have placed their faith in Him, He is our ever-present help in time of need. So we're getting a picture here of this bread being always set before God on this table. Okay, and Jesus is the bread of life, and He's ever-present help for us in time of need. Now, in um, verse 31, we're Exodus 25, verse 31, you shall also make a lampstand, of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of a hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be one piece, and six branches shall come out of its side. 
three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend it from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece, all of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it, and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of talent, of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now, I'm going to do my best to quickly summarize all of these verses here about this lampstand. And more specifically, I'm going to summarize their significance in our lives today. In the tabernacle, right, or this sanctuary that God is asking them to all pitch in on and build, right? There was to be a lampstand that was to be placed in the first section of this sanctuary, which was called the holy place. Now we're told about that in Hebrews chapter 9. The lamp was to be tended to by Aaron, the high priest, and his, and his sons, so that the light of that lamp never went out. The lampstand was to give forth light day and night. And you'll see that when we get to Exodus chapter 27. The lampstands were the only source of light in the tabernacle. And this points directly to Christ as being the light of the world. John 8:12 and John 9:5 refer to that. Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone. And the only way anyone can come to the Father is through Jesus Christ. Now, we also know that Jesus has called us, his church, his people to be a light in the world today. We're to be the light light in the world, right? And we do this because Christ abides in us. So people should look at us and see that light that shines forth that is the light of Christ. So we should live godly lives. There should be a difference in us, a contrast between light and darkness. The, le- the seven lampstands mentioned in uh, Revelation chapter 120 are the seven churches. The church is to walk in the light of God and spread the gospel. We see in these verses that the lampstand was made of one piece. Okay, It's a representation of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.8, Jesus is one with us, His church. The six branches of this lampstand can represent man because six is the number of man. And 
and add to that the main shaft of the lampstand, and this equals seven, which is the number of completion. And John 15, 5 says that we are complete in Christ. So today we see the mercy seat on the ark that points to Christ. We see the showbread that points to Christ. We see the lampstand that points to Christ and gives us a representation of Jesus Christ. The Bible is from the beginning to the end a testimony about Jesus Christ and God's merciful plan to redeem us. Why did we need to be redeemed? Because sin separates us from God, from a holy God. So God has a plan that we're reading about through the Bible to redeem mankind. And 1 Peter 2.9 says that He has taken us out of darkness and has brought us into His marvelous light. You and I have a part in it all. God wants each person to play a part in it all. We are to offer from what we have to God, right? He has shown us His mercy. He is the bread of life, our sustenance, right? He is our light that has delivered us from the darkness of this world. All that we have belongs to Him. So therefore, we should be people that are sacrificial, cheerful givers that desire to see the work of the kingdom of God continue. Does the work of the kingdom of God still exist on the earth today? Yes, it does. It exists through God is still trying to redeem people. How's He trying to redeem them? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ and what He has done. The question is, is do we cheerfully take part in it? Do we cheerfully take part in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are we just takers? Are we simply takers and, and not givers? God wants us to be givers. We see a plan unfolding. And, and we could actually probably spend weeks upon weeks just talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Just talking about the showbread, the lampstand, the table, all of that. We could spend a long time talking about that. But I'm more of a practical kind of exhortational kind of teacher that likes to kind of get to the point and say, what does this mean in our lives? How should we be living if we see how God points out you know, what, what He wants us to be doing? He wants us to take part in the building of His kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for this time in Your Word, God. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit who indwells us. We thank You for Your love and grace. Lord God, may we live for Your glory. May we shine as lights in this world. May Your will be done within us and through us, God. God, You know our hearts, Lord. If there's things that You need to purge from our lives, if there's things that we hold on to, Lord, if we have become covetous in, in any way, Lord, where we're holding on to the things of this world, Lord, Purify us and, and burn that away, Lord. Melt that away from within us, Lord. That we may be a people desirous to live for your kingdom and your kingdom's glory, Lord. That we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness above all else. Let your will be done in our hearts and minds. Again, we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.